Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to just uh, watch and uh, or set your DVR to be a part of what we're sharing. We started last week again. We've been uh, starting a new series out of the book of John, uh, St. John, and uh, we uh, did 28 programs back about all oh, several weeks ago uh, on the seven times in the scripture here in, in the book of John that Jesus said, I am. Uh, we're going to start back again in the book of John, but we're going to come from a, a few different angles here. But what we shared with you in that is that this book is, uh, according to John chapter 20, the apostle John writes and says that these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through His name. In other words, he's establishing himself, I believe, as the mediator of a better covenant. You know, I think it is a, a tragedy that we are 2,000 years into the new covenant, and at best we still are a mixture of two covenants. The book of Hebrews declares the fact that he made one old, it was fading away and about to become obsolete. That's been almost 2,000 years ago. The whole book of Hebrews is about what is better about the new covenant than the old covenant. In other words, it's got better blood, better promises. It's got a better tabernacle and a better temple. It has a better priesthood. It has better offerings. It has a more excellent way. It has a, a, a better faith. Uh, everything about it is trying to get the mind of the first century people to begin to shift from an old covenant to a new covenant paradigm. And uh, I, I think it's tragic that we still have to do that in the American church today, but I believe we are probably in one of the greatest reformations of human history. And I said recently in a meeting that I was at, I, we must be careful uh, that we're not leading a rebellion and that we're leading a reformation, because I think sometimes the spirit of rebellion can get in the different moves of God when the reality of it is God is not interested in a rebellion, He's interested in a reformation or a restoration, if you will, of truth. We, sh we shared uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, out of John chapter 1, we did four programs on John chapter 1 in the contrast there and uh, as an introduction to this, and you can go back and watch it at any time you'd like to, uh, while I'm mentioning that, I might tell you that everything we've aired to date is archived on YouTube. You can go back and watch them at your leisure, as well as every program we have aired to date is there. Uh, you can also get our podcast on iTunes, and the audio portions of this are available to you at no charge. There's also an RSS feed for your Android devices. And so uh, the easiest way to do that is simply to go to my website at lynnhiles.com and you'll see uh, my website address both on the screen and probably in the lower thirds on your television screen. There's a direct link at the upper right hand corner to all of that where it's very easy to just go there and watch them at your leisure to review back what we said. But I thought in coming back to uh, 
John's introduction in chapter number 1, uh, I'm just going to read verse number 14. It says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him, and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is before, before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of really a powerful statement right up front, because what he's shifting you away is he's shifting you away from the mindset that says, let's look to Moses. Because the establishment that Jesus is the Christ, remember John said he wrote this book, so that, uh, that uh, he said, you know, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you must move away from the fact that, and again, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to disgrade or, or disgrace Moses, except to say that Jesus is preeminent. In other words, he said grace and truth. Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so the shift is away from the whole Mosaic system into a new covenant. And what we're going to begin to see as I unpack this is that everything is going to begin to shift from a natural hermeneutic or a natural interpretation of Scripture to God showing us what those things in the Old Testament were actually a picture of. I believe it is the Apostle Paul said, Howbeit that which is natural is first, and then that which is spiritual. And what we're going to show you in these, uh, these uh, signs and some of the miracles that Jesus did, especially in this first one, and through the next couple of chapters, is how he begins to take what they thought was the natural temple, for instance, and he begins to pull them out of their, uh, their thinking and saying, you know, you thought that was the temple, but that's not the temple. Uh, I'm the real temple of God. In other words, he will say that in the latter part of this chapter, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it back up again. And so while they thought he was talking about that natural building, he spake concerning the temple of his own body. And so he was trying to shift them from a natural understanding, which the Old Covenant or the Old Testament is Jesus concealed, and the New Covenant is Jesus revealed. I could literally take days upon days and probably months to go back through every book of the Bible and show you they are snapshots of Jesus and His redemptive work that all through the Old Covenant God was constantly giving pictures so that He could literally create for us a language to understand Heaven's language. And uh, you know, Jesus Himself then exactly uh, on the road to Emmaus, right after His resurrection, appears to His uh, disciples. There's a couple of them that are walking on the road to Emmaus. I call it Heartburn Road because they said, did not our hearts burn within us? And He begins, the Scripture said he, that he, as He approached them, uh, He said, why are you cast down and your countenance is so sad? And they said, are, are you only a stranger 
in Israel, and do you not know the things that have occurred here these three days and, and three nights? And probably Jesus probably grinned within himself, thinking, I'm the only one that really knows what happened in the three days and three nights of his death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, so, but he, the Bible said, and he beginning with uh, Moses, began to tell them all things concerning himself. In other words, I think uh, that if, you know, anybody that's any kind of a Bible scholar can kind of see these patterns. In other words, he began with Moses and told them all things concerning himself. In other words, he probably began to explain how the lamb that was taken out from among the sheep and the goats was not just a, uh, a picture of some historic animal that was killed, but he in fact was the Lamb of God. And even John the Baptist, uh, you know, uh, introduces Jesus and says right there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I believe that he can begin to tell them that he was the fullness of the Passover. We're going to see some things here because he's at the Passover again as he begins to, you know, one of the things that would be an interesting study, and I'm going to do it right now, would be to go back and see the activities of Jesus and what he does at each one of the feasts of Israel to bring them to fulfillment. And so, uh, you know, as I begin to think in terms of this, I, my mind began to shift towards spiritual, and I think where we really have confusion is when we start to confuse the old covenant natural with the new covenant spiritual. Because the reality of it is, as he probably began to share some things concerning himself, he began to share how he was in fact the temple of God. How he in fact was the manna that came down from heaven. Matter of fact, he quotes that very scripture over in John 6, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. And you thought that was the true bread, but that's not the bread. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. The serpent on the pole was a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as he stood there and talked to those people and said to them, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. This spake he concerning what death he would die. And so Jesus began to show that the serpent on the pole in the Old Covenant was a picture of Him on the work of the cross, spoiling principalities and powers, and, and defeating the serpent on the ground. Uh, I I've showed you so many of these patterns that I don't want to go back and just do a, you know, a study of those patterns, but also in Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10 I believe it is, He tells them that everything that happened to them under Moses happened to them as an example for us upon whom the ends of the age had come. Now that was, uh, you know, talking to the first century church at Corinth. He said everything that happened, you know, was just a picture of what was coming. And so the real exodus was a coming out of, I believe, well, I'll just, I'm not just believe, I'm going to say scripturally that the exodus this time that Jesus is about to lead because he's the greater than Moses that's on the scene, is an exodus out of the bondage of an old covenant religious system that made you a servant and a slave and not a son. I've had some conflict recently even about that where people say, well, you know, I'm, I, you know, I think we're supposed to be servants. I'm not saying we don't serve. What I'm saying is that I'm not a servant or a slave trying to be a son. I'm a son who serves. And I do it because I love my father. But as I begin to, uh, you know, begin to see that the, 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 the paradigm shift from 
the bondage of Egypt, in other words, the Exodus journey, is, I believe, a very powerful picture of them coming out of the bondage of a religious system. Uh, Revelation, for instance, the 11th chapter, in verse number 8, it says this, speaking concerning the two witnesses, which I believe are speak of the law and the prophets, because they have the power to shut up the heavens, that it rain not during the days of the prophecies, or to smite the earth as often as they will with plagues. If that doesn't connect that to Moses and Elijah, or if you will, the picture of the law and the prophets, I don't know what does. But it says, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, watch this, where also our Lord was crucified. So he said the, the city where our Lord was crucified is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Well, uh, if you would think about that, see I read over that for years, it never really dawned on me, that the, that the city where our Lord was crucified was not Sodom, nor was it Egypt. It was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the centerpiece of Judaism and the Old Covenant because its sacrificial system, its priesthood, and its temple were there in Jerusalem until 70 AD when it was destroyed and dismantled so that the people could not go back to that covenant if they would have wanted to. So the, what I'm sharing with you is, is that, uh, you know, that they had come to the end of that old covenant, and it was really a coming out of a spiritual bondage of Egypt, because if he says, it, it was that the city where our Lord was crucified was spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. And Jesus himself stood in many of the cities and said to them, if the miracles would, that were done in you would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago, and it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than it will be for you. So he's connecting that religious system again to Sodom and to Egypt. And most of my life growing up, I was thinking, well, Egypt is a picture of the world. And yes, it can be any kind of bondage you're in, because I'm, I'm not suggesting you trade the bondage of religion for the bondage of substance abuse or for the bondage of sin. What I am suggesting is whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You're not getting free from religion so you can go destroy your life with sin. You're getting free from religion because you're being led out of a bondage by a better mediator by the name of Jesus Christ. And we're going to kind of address that in some of the upcoming uh, stuff that we deal with. It's much better covenant because the old covenant was full of demand and the new covenant is full of supply. And you know, I don't think it's an accident that the wilderness journey was 40 years long. And uh, while I'm trying not to get into eschatology, it seems like I always seem to default back to that. And it's very important to understand some of this. But even when Jesus gives the prophecies in Matthew chapter 24, where he's talking about, he's standing in front of the beautiful buildings of the temple. He's not talking about something that was 2,000 years off in the distant future. He was standing in front of the beautiful buildings of the temple, and he says to them, do you not see all of these things? Talking about the temple, right there in Jerusalem. He said, not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown 
down. And they ask him, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And uh, the word, uh, King James uses the word world, but it's the Greek word age. But it's not the end of a coming age. It was the end of the old covenant age. If you don't get that, you're going to be stuck. That's why we're still stuck 2,000 some years later with an old covenant paradigm is because we don't realize that the end of that system in the last days of Hebrews 1, 1, where Paul said, God hath in these last days spoken to us by the Son, was not the last days of this uh, age. It was the last days of an old covenant age. Hebrews 9 says, once in the end of the world, that's King James, every other translation says, once in the end of the age, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The end of the age, or the end of the world that he was talking about there, was the end of the world of Old Covenant Judaism and the end of the Old Covenant. And it was, he did that by the sacrifice of himself. That's not something he's going to do out in the distant future. If he did, we're still in our sins. That's something he already did. I tell people a lot of times, even with the eschatological thing, and I really don't want to make it a issue, you know, that becomes divisive. But I just usually say this to people, probably everything you believe about the end times is correct. It's just that you have the end at the wrong point. You think the end is out in your future, when in fact, if you just read the Scriptures with this thought in mind when you see that, and just think, just consider the possibility that the end that he's talking about was not out in the distant future, but it was in that first century, in the end of the age, they were the people upon whom the ends of the ages had come. Uh, I probably, uh, well, I won't have him put the graph up on the screen, but uh, you know, they, they were the people, they were the people upon whom the ends of the ages had come. And uh, the reality of it is, is that as, uh, as they had come to the end of the Old Covenant age and the beginning of the New Covenant age, there was such, there was a, a if you will, a 40-year gap in between there. And uh, what, what, because what Jesus said was, He said uh, to them, when they asked Him, when will these things be? I might just go ahead and ask my team if I can get that, and if it's possible to bring that up on the screen here in just a moment. I'm going to quote again. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, is where I'm taking this thought from. Remembering once again that the Apostle uh, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Audience relevance is everything. It's not, it's not available, so we won't have it today. But he's taught writing to the church at Corinth. And if you could just kind of picture in your mind a, a circle. And that one circle would be like a, uh, it would be like the first circle would be the Old Covenant Age. And then I would draw another circle, and it would overlap just a little bit. And I would call this, new, this, this circle, uh, this other circle, if you can picture that in your mind, I would call that the New Covenant Age. And right where these two circles overlap, it, there would be, they would just overlap just a little bit, if you could picture that in your mind. That is called, I believe, what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, the ends, plural, of the ages, plural, because it was the back end 
of the Old Covenant age and the front end of the New Covenant age. And that gap between those two ages was about 40 years long. You say, how do you know that? Because when Jesus gave the prophecy of Matthew 24, uh, He began to uh, show how that in Matthew 24 that uh, there was a that, that he said to them, this generation will not pass away. There we go. My team did find it, okay? The old covenant age, again, if you could just picture this, just look at the screen. The old covenant age was, uh, uh, Jesus had come on the scene right, in the, right, right at the ends of the ages. 1 Corinthians 10 again says, once in the end, ends, ends, plural, that would be the back end of the old covenant age and the front end of the old covenant. This, this is the ends of the ages. Two ages have converged. Hath he appeared to put away sin by him, the sacrifice of himself. And this, this period of time between these two ages was the period of time in which most of the New Testament is written. And the book of Hebrews talks about this one was fading away because the temple was still standing here until the end of this age. And to set the time clock for you, Jesus gave the prophecy in Matthew 24 exactly 40 years before the temple is destroyed. Because he says to them in verse 34, when they said, when will this happen? Talking again about they'll deliver you up to be killed, there'll be famines, there'll be tr great tribulation such as was not since the world began, there will be uh, persecutions, famines, hunger, all of these things that you hear him talk about. And he's going to answer their question. When will these things be? And he and, then, and what will be the sign of your coming? And one of the and see one of the, and I'm trying not to get into eschatology here today, but the sign he said here here's the sign he gave. He said when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, you will know that it is near, even at the door. Well, when Jerusalem was encompassed with armies was about just a couple of years before the end of this age. And then they said, where, Lord? He said, wherever the vultures are, that's where, wherever the carcass is, that's where the vultures will be gathered together. The vultures was the sign that was on the Roman staff as they would come to seize the city. It was literally the symbol of, 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 of the uh, of the bird that Jesus was talking about that would come and when you see in, uh, Jerusalem encompassed with armies, you know it's not even at the door. And I think sometimes we think in terms of His coming as being maybe just His physical, literal return. And I'm not getting into even those issues here, but a lot of times in the Old Testament, when He would come in judgment, He would use the terminology, He comes on the swift cloud, He comes in the dark clouds, He comes the armies. In other words, that was prophetic language to talk about a destruction of a city, and many times even over apostate Israel in history. So what He was saying is that these things that I'm prophesying are about to come to pass, and they literally are going to use what Jesus says in John 2. We'll get there in just uh, probably the next program when He says, destroy this temple in three days, uh, I'll raise it back up again. Uh, they thought He was talking in the natural, and He was talking in the spiritual, and that's one of the reasons they crucified Him. See, let me say this to you. People will not crucify you for what they think you said. They will, uh, for what you said, they will crucify you for what 
they think you said. And if they're thinking in the natural and you're talking in the spirit, people are going to get all kinds of different opinions about you. And that's probably where my greatest persecution comes from, is when people try to figure out, you know, what I'm saying or not saying and try to just be clear. I'm trying to be very clear so you don't have to wonder. But this particular 40-year period is the time they were coming out of the city which was spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, and that judgment that Jesus talked about upon Sodom and the rain, fire, and brimstone, He said it'd be more tolerable for, for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. That was one of the cities Jesus visited. And then when He talks about he will, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified, He's pointing the finger back and saying, hey, this city of Jerusalem is the centerpiece of, of Judaism, and, it, and, I, and he's equating that to the bondage of slavery under Egypt where we made bricks and served, it was servitude. But I'm telling you, I believe God is raising up deliverers today, and I want to say prophetically to some preachers or pastors or teachers that are listening to me, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. It is my passion to bring people into the glorious liberty of walking in relationship with Jesus in this new covenant. And so I don't think it's an accident that it was 40 years and everything that happened to them under Moses happened to them uh, by type and shadow in the new covenant. In other words, they're delivered under Moses in the old covenant by the blood of a real literal barnyard creature. In the New Covenant, John the Baptist stands right in the River Jordan and begins to shift to a spiritual. He said, right there's the real Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I would encourage you to put the blood of this Lamb on the doorpost of your house. But don't just put the blood on the doorpost. Take the Lamb inside the house and feed on Lamb. Because the moment you get enough lamb in your belly, something will rise up in you at midnight and say, I was not born for bondage. I can't live in this bondage any longer. I don't care if it's religious bondage or the bondage of substance abuse or the bondage of sin or whatever bondage. You get enough lamb and you won't be able to live in that bondage anymore. And so what I began to see was then they, they were delivered by the blood. They're delivered by the water at the Red Sea. And then you know, the manna falls in the backyard, and, and uh, of course Jesus takes that and says, you know, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead, but I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. We talked about the serpent on the pole. In other words, everything that happened to them, including uh, crossing the Jordan River, was pictured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, that transition out of an old covenant into a new covenant was pictured, and finally on the road to Emmaus, the disciples didn't seem to still get this revelation. I, if I'd like to just heard Jesus talk that, and you'd have thought they'd have got the pictures, but the Bible said they did not know Him until the breaking of the bread, because the night before His decease He took the bread and He broke the bread. He said, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me, and they knew Him 
in the breaking of the bread and the revelation poured into their lives. I hope that's what happens as you continue to listen to me unpack the keys of the kingdom to unlock the scriptures. We're about to run out of time. If you appreciate and love what we're doing, please get behind it. Uh, there will be a, a number on the screen where you can call if you'd like to give a donation via credit card or debit. You can easily go to the link on the screen and give. Uh, there, there's a place to give and uh, um, there may be even possibly a, uh, a text to give screen that comes up and you will be able to give that way or you can send check or money order to the address that will come on the screen and your help is greatly appreciated as it helps us take the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace around the world. Thanks for joining us today. I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving Father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.